I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Anti-Dystopians. For this episode of the Anti-Dystopians, we have a very exciting guest, Professor David Rensman. David is a professor of politics at the University of Cambridge, the host of the critically acclaimed podcast Talking Politics, and he also happens to be my PhD supervisor. We talk about why corporations are robots, how singularity might have already come about, and why we should think seriously about the political philosophy of Silicon Valley. So hi, David. Thanks so much for being here. Really excited to have you on, particularly since you're normally the one asking me the questions. So now I get to ask them in return. I'm normally the one asking the questions generally. I'd say. <laughs> um, well, let's just get into it. So I, I've heard you say this multiple times on your podcast in lecture, um, but you've said, you know, you think that technology corporations and Silicon Valley might be changing the very nature of the state itself um, or the international system. So, so I wonder um, if maybe you could talk a little bit about how you think technology corporations are changing politics. It's a big question. I mean, it, it's partly to do with power. They, my sense is they, they have a kind of power that's unfamiliar. Um, I mean, a lot of it is familiar. They're rich. They got lots and lots of money. They got lots and lots of cash. Um, they are corporations, and they've always been powerful corporations. Uh, but they have possibly a kind of power that comes from the dependence that both states and citizens have on them. Um, a kind of mutual dependence both ways. Uh, you know, they are integrated not just in our lives but in the lives of states. And so no one really knows if it gets to a showdown. Uh, who gets to pull the plug on whom. There's that sort of feeling that it might be quite uh, contentious if states and these kinds of corporations get into a, a real contest. Um, but we, I think we already have a sense of the relative powerlessness of citizens in the face of these corporations, because if they, if they are the gatekeepers, if they control access to basic services and infrastructure, it's not like a, a monopoly, an oil company's monopoly. An oil... An oil company at the beginning of the 20th century that had a monopoly could make life incredibly difficult for businesses and towns and communities but they didn't have this kind of overarching reach and then I think it's partly because these corporations uh, do so many different things in so many different ways through so many different vehicles um, that it's not that easy to know when you're dealing with them uh, and th that sort of mixture of reach new kind of power wealth, um, youth, they've only been around for a short time. So it's not like they've got a 
many of them are well-developed sort of experienced corporate culture to know what to do. Uh, I think they are probably changing the political landscape. But having said all of that, I also think it is true that uh, there is history here and there are parallels. And it's possible that these kinds of powerful corporations that stand somewhere on the edges or outside of the state system are taking us back to an earlier time where states didn't have such a monopoly of uh, decision-making power as they we got used to them having in the last couple of centuries. So it, it both could be very new 21st century corporate power, and it could also be something that brackets this era of state domination, which you know, for all sorts of reasons might be coming to an end. So I wonder then why, in your mind, why is it the Silicon Valley corporations that are emerging as these really powerful corporate actors? Is it because, as you said, like just like any old corporation, they have so much wealth and power and infrastructure, or is there really something about the technology that they're developing that they think is so innovative or or, or what have you that, that makes the difference? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's complicated. So there are comparable corporate entities in China, which have equivalently sophisticated technologies, uh, vast, perhaps vaster networks of uh, customers or consumers, or, you know, it's not just Silicon Valley that has and is developing this kind of technology. There are vast, immensely powerful Chinese corporations, um, but they have a different kind of relationship to the state. Uh, and it seems like for now anyway, considerably less independence. Uh, but this technology is not just located in Silicon Valley and in the, you know, in the great contest between Chinese and American development of AI or intelligence weapon systems or whatever it is, it's not certain that Silicon Valley is going to win. So it's not just somehow Silicon Valley is right at the edge of this. On the other hand, there are places that don't seem to have companies that are producing this kind of technological innovation. So Europe is one. Um, it's not clear that there's anything coming out of Europe that can compete with Silicon Valley. I think it's, in the American case, it's that combination of cutting edge technology that seems to have a particular and novel way of shaping how we all live and relative corporate independence from political control. And that combination seems particularly powerful, potentially for these corporations. You know, Chinese, the Chinese equivalent of the Silicon Valley Titans, some of them are now you know, disappeared. Uh, not, nothing yet seems to have got in the way of the Silicon Valley corporations just continuing to develop and grow. But it's not just one thing or the other. It's not just have this if you have this technology as a corporate entity, you'll rule the world because it really depends where you are. And it's not just if you are a powerful corporation, at some point you'll get a cutting edge technology because there are many powerful corporations in Europe that would kill to be able to innovate like Silicon Valley. It's something about the combination, I think. So one of the ideas that Silicon Valley is a bit obsessed with is this idea of singularity when AI or robots mm. will surpass human intelligence and take us over. And I actually read a really interesting piece this morning about it says Elon Musk doesn't care if the sea turtles die because of his long-term futurism, because if he thinks AI will take over um, the world. That's reassuring. <laughs> yeah. Very, that. very clickbait he heading, but um, right, linking all kind of these I ideas together about like long-termism and, and AI. But but you've you've basically made the argument that 
this has already happened, that there is a robot that is more intelligent or somehow more powerful than humans, and that's states and corporations. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about this idea and how you think it might then reflect on the Silicon Valley's conception of the dangers of AI. Yeah, so there is there's a view of human history that uh, you can plot it in a single graph. There are lots of versions of it. Anyone can just you know, find them online. Uh, just the story of per capita GDP growth across time. And the line is flat from the dawn of time, dawn of Homo sapiens till about 1750. Um, and then starting in England and then moving to places like France, then the United States, then Europe, and then in the 20th century through to other parts of the world, including Asia, it goes from being horizontal to being vertical. It's just exponential growth um, in human wealth, life expectancy, health. A lot of the criteria of uh, human well-being simply explode. Not happiness, probably, but other things. But I don't think anyone thinks the, the, the next singularity is necessarily going to make us happier. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the things it is meant to be going to make us to do, do which is to transform hum, human lifespans, change our productive capacity, might make us exponentially wealthier, some of us, uh, completely change the way in which we can connect to each other. Yeah, my feeling is it sort of happened once before uh, over the last couple of hundred years. And there are endless competing explanations for what caused this great explosion or sometimes great divergence, it's called. Human societies were one thing and they became something else. Scientific knowledge is part of it. Um, energy and you know, exploitation of material resources is part of it. Escaping the Malthusian trap is part of it. But I think it also unquestionably has something to do with the creation of this new breed of artificial entities that we have come to call states and corporations, modern states, modern corporations, which are artificial, they're not natural, they don't grow on trees, they're kind of built in a mechanical way. They are basically systems, they are algorithms, they are designed to take decisions. So the thing that I don't think that states and corporations are is AIs. So I don't think that they are super intelligent. And the evidence for that is they are clearly not super intelligent. Right? It's sort of, uh, I think you'd have to have a pretty roast-inted view of history to think that when we created the modern state, suddenly political decision-making got a lot smarter. It didn't. But what they are, so they're not kind of you know, cognitive machines designed to come up with better solutions. Um, but they, sometimes states have done that, um, but on the whole, that they can also be hopeless and inefficient, and they probably are as smart or as stupid as the people who run them. Uh, what they are is supercharged decision-making machines. So they are entities that were created to allow political decision-making to have a quality that transcends human limitations. Pre-modern states tended to fall down on the human limitations. The human being would die. Human being would make a mistake. Groups of human beings would sort of fragment and the state would fall apart. And these states are designed to have a durability, a longevity, a power, an ability to assert themselves in, a world, in the world, to follow through on the consequences of their decisions in a way that is basically robot-like. They're kind of killer robots is what they are. And this idea starts really with Hobbes and Leviathan. And in Leviathan, Hobbes says in the first line, the state is an automaton. So it's a killer robot. And it's designed to be more powerful than anything else in the world so that decisions have real lasting force. 
and something about the creation of these entities, which then also you know, can be mimicked or recreated in a corporate form, corporations that have this sort of turbocharged ability to sustain decision-making over time, which allows for capital investment and debt. You know, one of the crucial things that comes out of this invention is that these entities, these robots can carry debts over long periods of time in a way that people believe is reliable. Um, and they are more than the sum of their parts. These entities, these states and corporations did change what it is means to be human because they created schemes and, and projects and plans and also competition and also threats that are on a completely different scale than anything that went before. It goes along with capitalism. You know, it's, none of this is a sufficient explanation of anything. But then again, I think one of the mistakes about the singularity is the belief that there are, I mean, Musk sounds like he's giving that, that these things are sufficient, right? That once you get to the tipping point, that's enough to solve the other problems. So states and corporations don't sufficiently explain how the human condition was transformed, but they do form a necessary part of the explanation. And the thing is that they are artificial decision-making machines. That's what they were designed to be to, and to be vastly more powerful than we are uh, and vastly more powerful than any states that had existed before you know the roman empire the roman republic these were pretty powerful states but the you know the modern not just the modern american state but most states could kind of you know brush them aside in the same way that a thinking machine now could brush aside a 1970s or 1960s thinking machine so something exponential happened and it involves the creation of these artificial agents uh, which have a superhuman power, but they're not super intelligent. And so the thing about the next singularity is that it might be the one where the machines don't just end up being more durable than us, more powerful than us, better able than us to shape the world according to their own decision-making, but smarter than us. And that's, that would be different. I accept that. I'm not saying it wouldn't be unusual and singular, but it would be different. But it also raises the question, the last thing I'll say, it also raises the question, which is, what happens when those super smart machines join forces with the super powerful machines? You know, what happens when states and corporations hitch their wagon to AIs that can outperform us on some measure of intelligence? Because to now, states can outperform us, you know, they're much better than us at, for good and for bad, imposing decisions and choices, but they haven't been able to outthink us. But if they could outthink us, then they would be really scary. I wonder then too, so it seems then the form of the robot, if you think about the robot as the artificial decider, the mm. really scary thing about like states and corporations is not, as you said, their thinking ability, but their deciding ability. And, you know, as, 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 you know, Musk and the singularists are, are imagining, as you said, an AI that's more intelligent than us. But if you think about like something like the Amazon warehouse with their algorithms and fancy AI and everything, the thing that is scary about it is not how smart the algorithm is, but that it's deciding for the humans what to mm. do. So, so I wonder then, are you, are you more, more or less worried about the the idea that the AI will be smarter or that like, as you said, new corporations will just be able to take more decisions for us. Yes, yeah, so I think there is a sort of difference between, and this often just 
doesn't come out when people talk about this. There's a difference between a machine whose job is to decide for us and a machine whose job is to answer questions that we can't answer. Um, and these things might, you know, the Venn diagram, they would overlap a lot. It's not like answers can't be decisions and decisions can't be answers. So if, if you know, if, if your question is, what's, your, what's my decision? My answer is my decision. It's not like these are, but you can think of examples where, you know, you, you want a smart machine to come up with the solution to some technical problem, which is similar in form to a maths puzzle or something like that. And the answer to a maths puzzle is not a decision, right? Two plus two equals four is not a decision that it's for. Um, and actually markets, which are very intelligent machines or search engines, you know, when Google, when you type something into Google and Google comes up with not just an answer to a question, but an answer to the question of what you were looking for. It's not a decision, right? It's not like the, the search engine decided that's what you're looking for. It answered it through its algorithm. Whereas, you know, a decision is a choice often. Uh, it might be an intelligent choice. It might be an incredibly stupid choice. I mean, there's nothing to say that decisions have to be intelligent. And that's part of the point of the state, right? It decides for better or for worse. And corporations do a lot of that too. Um, but it's easy to kind of get these things jumbled up. So you can easily think that, you know, a machine has come up with an intelligent answer to a puzzle. So that must be the decision. The decision must be that that's the basis on which you're going to act. But it doesn't have to be. But it's easy and tempting to kind of franchise out decision-making to smart machines. And I think that's probably dangerous because you really have to know where you have choices and where you don't. You, know, you don't have any choice as to whether two plus two equals four, but you do have a choice if you think that you can't afford to hire four people, you can only afford to hire three. So if the machine says the answer is four, you shut down the enterprise, whatever it is, that's a decision based on an answer. And if you franchise that all out to machines, uh, you, you can just muddle up things that you have to keep separate. And then the other thing that I would, you know, if you think of the Amazon warehouse, with its smart systems and its algorithms and its techniques for answering questions and therefore managing how people live. So blurring answers and decisions, but also then annexed to the power of the corporation as a giant decision-making machine. And Amazon, the, the company, not Amazon, the smart systems, but Amazon, the company is a familiar old fashioned corporate entity with rights and responsibilities and hiring power and firing power and you know some protections from the law that would apply in other ways and some liberties that have been granted to it as a corporate entity you know these these algorithms are serving another machine they are serving a, a corporate machine and there's a much longer story about that which is that the problem with corporations is that they aren't human uh, so whatever you think of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, these are human beings. You know, Amazon is not the one, or Tesla is not the one with an interesting private life. Uh, you know, these 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 entities are completely separate, and it it is the the machine that the algorithms are working for. They're not they're not working for Bezos and Musk, and you, you can think of ways it could go really well that they would sort of you know the corporation would become more efficient the uh, systems would you know, better serve the interests of the corporation. But you can also think of ways it could be pretty malign because the thing about machines is they're not human. So if the systems are coming up with answers that were they decisions would be inhuman, 
you can't count on the corporation to spot it because the corporation is itself inhuman. Some human beings probably need to interpose themselves in the process or else you might get this sort of doom loop <laughs> where the corporation and the, the, the algorithm, let's call it, you know, the, the decision-making mm -hmm. algorithmic capacity of the corporation and the problem-solving algorithmic capacity of the systems sort of feed off each other's inhumanity and then you just get a really miserable place for human beings to work. Yeah, I was thinking about that because it seems like like Hobbes's idea of the state was that the state is going to be the decider, which then like rescues us from mm. politics and, and, and like a certain kind of politics, as you say. Um, but then I, so then I'm thinking that if a corporation is, you know, if states are like corporations and corporations um, take decisions, then are corporations rescuing us from something and, and then I'm wondering too, because sometimes when you like, you know, when you analyze the like economic system as opposed to, or like the business system, as opposed to the political system, it does seem that every kind of individual within the corporation, within the economic system agrees that something's gone terribly wrong. Mm. Um, but you know, the wheel just, just keeps turning because that's what it does in the same way that you might say the same thing of like a state where everybody in the state is like, oh God, we shouldn't do this. But the state just keeps turning. Do you, do you think corporations or states are comparable in that, in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think they probably are. And then I think they're also comparable to AI. So if you think of that analogy between the two singularities, the sort of, you know, the one that happened, well, in different places at different times. So in England in 1750, in America in 1820, in France, around the same time and then in parts of Europe you know places like Sweden and Denmark which 150 60 70 years ago were hell on earth basically you know you, no one would want to live in mid 19th century Sweden anyone who wanted to do anything other than starve to death and yet now you know, Sweden's a pretty great place to live um and if and if you said to the Swedes uh in the 1850s look we're going to build these machines for you uh, which are going to make you live three times as long. They're going to make you, in the course of ba basically three or four generations, 10 to 20 times as rich. Um, they're going to abolish war for you. Swedes, you're very, I mean, who knows, right? At the moment, but you're very unlikely to have to fight uh, past a certain point. You know, give it a bit of time. They'll, they'll bring you peace. Uh, they will support incredible education systems you know, all your kids will go to school i mean i don't know how many kids would have gone to school in 1850 sweden but i'm guessing very few actually they'll all end up going to university uh and we'll build those two and like these machines will kind of you know it's like the singularity right it's someone you know if, if someone says now if ray kurzweil says now people will live four times as long and be 10 times as rich and everyone won't just go to university but everyone will go will have a you know the equivalent of a phd in their pocket and all of that it would be the same 1850s sweden to 21st century sweden so in the blink of an eye in the history of the species complete transformation but the price is that you won't be able to control these things completely uh because they will be not just more powerful, but in some ways more complex and also more mysterious than human beings can quite fathom. They might have a black box at their heart. So you think you know what input goes into their decision-making and how it should produce outputs. You know, there'll be things like elections and constitutions and you know, you'll be able to read all of the systems written out and then 
you'll try and work out so this this and this should produce that but then it doesn't and you'll try and understand why and you won't be able to find out the reason why you and then you'll try and find the people who must be responsible but you won't know and then your state in Sweden, what, this won't be true of your state, but it will be true of the neighbouring states. I mean, f- so you'll be told France, for instance, and uh, the UK uh, will have at their disposals weapons that can destroy all of humanity. Um, so you know, the downside of this incredible thing is that you might lose control of machines with human-destroying capabilities. It's just the th- it's the same version of the thing that people are worried about. You know, build these AIs; they could make our lives so much better. But the risk is we will build systems and machines that we don't understand how they function because they will have superhuman capacities, and then we'll try and regain control of them. But if they have superhuman capacities, we might not know how. I mean, these stories aren't identical, obviously, but they are comparable. So it's not like states and corporations haven't rescued us. They have. I don't want to live in 1850s Sweden. I don't want to live in 1950s South Korea. I don't want to live in 2022 North Korea, which hasn't been through its singularity. Um, you know, I want to live in the places where a combination of you know, a whole set of contingencies plus this sort of artificial institutional arrangement changes everything. But the risk is, I mean, these things go together, that these states, these corporations may not be that easy for us to control in exactly the way you described that you can imagine a future with AIs where people say, well, this AI has gone a bit wrong. Find us the people who built it. You know, where's, where's the blueprint? And no one knows and no one can find it. And the people who built it said, well, we didn't know it was going to work like this. And we don't actually know how to switch it off. Um, that's the story of the modern state and the modern corporation. So I wonder, this is more of kind of a, a, a theoretical question, but, you know, uh, the I wonder how you think about taking the ideas of Silicon Valley and these like tech folks seriously. So, you know, you've, you've obviously, you know, for your lecture three ideas, you, you, you take as a starting point one of Silicon Valley's ideas, which it might be easy to dismiss as kind of silly in a sense. Um, but, but you take it and you say, actually, this is quite interesting, but I'm going to, you know, actually it's already happened before mm. with with states right so i'm wondering how do you think about both as like i don't know if a, a former podcaster like a, a, a public intellectual and a political theorist like how do you approach the ideology of of silicon valley and like the ideas that they have because you've written a lot about you know peter Thiel about about the tech guys and it seems like uh, you know one of the things which is to say is that their ideas are a bit silly um but then but we're what's kind of the second step where do you go from there how do you think about the the people who are are influencing like the the theorists who are influencing them i mean i suppose it's partly so what i what i am by profession i guess is a historian of ideas and so there's a tendency with the since the digital revolution to have a kind of cult of the new um and not only almost all of, not all of them because some of them are very young but almost all of these people kind of you know started out thinking about stuff before these very new things existed and so their shape their thinking is shaped by what they read in college or whatever and you know clearly a lot of them very influenced by libertarian political philosophy you know, there are a lot of Ayn Rand and Hayekians and people who read Nozick's Anarchy State and Utopia you know this is all pre-digital revolution political philosophy or economic theory applied by people who then 
have a new set of tools at their disposal. So if nothing else, there's not some sort of watershed in time where this technology changed all the ideas because the ideas themselves have histories, both in the people who hold them and also they have genealogies. Um, I also have a, you know, a tendency to think that one of the things that's neglected when people try and think, I mean, it's much more widespread now the the rectifying of this than it was five or 10 years ago. There's a lot of really interesting history written about uh, the origins and you know, the, the forerunners, the foreshadowing of this revolution, comparisons with earlier tech revolutions, but also comparisons with earlier sort of libertarian philosophies. But on the whole, history tends to be neglected. I mean, one of the bugbears I always used to have is that it was thought that if you had some exciting new academic project that was <clears throat> interrogating new technology, the important fields to bring in were ethics and law. So, you, you know, you want to know, is it legal and is it good? <laughs> Whereas I think and the other question you want to ask is, is it new? Uh, because some bits of it almost certainly won't be new. Nothing is completely new. Uh, so I'm interested in where... Uh, some of these ideas come from where the people who hold these ideas got them from. Um, but I, I, that doesn't mean I don't think it's not also a lot of it new. Uh, and these ideas are held in new combinations. And then they're held by people who are very, very powerful. Um, you know, it matters. I mean, people spend a lot of time worrying where polit politicians get their ideas and what their philosophy is, even though their philosophies are often pretty silly too. Um, but... <laughs> some of these people are more powerful. I mean, it's, so, so just to give an example, so I remember um, when the coalition government in Britain was formed in 2010, a lot of interest in kind of what Nick Clegg believes um, because on the whole, the Liberal Democrats used to not want to work with Tories, but there was some suspicion that Nick Clegg might, uh, you know, have quite a lot of sympathy with certain Conservative thinking and there was a you know a book of ideas that he contributed to, to called the orange book which suggested a different kind of liberalism with a different genealogy all thought to be very important for sort of understanding the role he might play the fact he did then form a government with the conservative party not labor and seemed to have some ideological affinity with some of it but not all of it anyway buckets of virtual ink spent on that not really read anything since he became much, much more powerful as the whatever he is, head of corporate woo-war at global woo-war at Facebook. Um, so I don't actually, know, I don't really have a sense of what he thinks about um, this stuff that we've just been talking about. But it's probably more important at the moment to know what Nick Clegg thinks than it was 10, I mean, 10 years ago. Yeah, you know, he was for, he was against tuition fees and then he was for them. But if he's now, Re reading and thinking books, uh, ideas about privacy or um, the ups and downs of network effects or whatever it is, really matters. So it also just matters that they're... And, and no, one who's, no one who's made as much money as Elon Musk has can be described as silly either. That's so funny because when I first started at Cambridge, every single person I talked to, I asked if they had a good read on Nick Clegg and his ideology so oh, really and did, yeah did you get any answer no <laughs> but Politico did do um not really on his ideology but I do remember a year or so ago they did a long read on whether he was influencing Zuckerberg too much and one of the things they analyzed was that Mark Zuckerberg had started to use cricket terminology 
in his <laughs> speeches and they took this as an example of the enormous amount of influence Nick Clegg must have. The mind boggles. Uh, 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 the mind boggles. It's like those, yeah, those sort of Cold War things where everything depends on whether you think the Cold War is a game of chess or a game of poker. Yeah. So now, no doubt, the future of the world depends on whether it's a game of baseball or a game of <laughs> cricket, <laughs> whether or not the robots eat us or don't. Precisely. But, but it is really interesting. I mean, I think, uh, like, as you know, the person who who baffles me most is Peter Thiel and how he, especially the the ideology, the the theorist that he holds up, Rene Girard and Elon Musk's too. I think Jill Laporte did a really good podcast on Elon Musk's ideology. It was a whole series, right? That this question of like, what do these guys who are like these huge billionaires really believe? And then, mm. you know, no, no, but there's not as much as as you would there's not as much as, you know, Tony Blair with Machiavelli running around, you know, the same. Yeah, and it is, so it's, in, you know, Jill Laporte's a historian, and it is a sort of historian's question. Um, and with someone like Peter Thiel, it's, you know, it's complicated, right? It involves religion, it involves philosophies that aren't just a few decades old, but thousands of years old. It involves a, a complicated personal history. And given power, the power and influence, it's worth trying to understand it, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, another thing I wanted to ask you is, right, you you recently, or might be a while ago now, but wrote an article about Dominic Cummings and his blog, which you read so that we didn't have to. Um, and I've often actually been quite struck about the how Cummings apocalypse rhetoric really fits in well with the rhetoric of these Silicon Valley guys from, from Teal, but s- same as well with, you know, the right with Newt Gingrich and, and all these folks. Um, and obviously Dominic Cummings had some, you know, rhetorical remarks about how he wanted to integrate the Silicon Valley mindset into the UK. Um, so I wonder, like, do you think that there is a wider, especially looking at how like Silicon Valley figures, Peter Thiel with like the, the, the Trumpists and things, like, do, do you think there's a wider ideological uh, alliance here or, you know, as a historian of ideas, do you see any sort of similarities between between these these figures who we wouldn't necessarily always clump together as as tech folks. Well, so someone like Cummings and someone like yeah, I mean, so so there is a there's definitely a network of bloggers and thinkers and writers, almost all men, uh, of which Cummings is one. Some of them, you know, some of them <clears throat> Silicon Valley people, some of them other kinds of um, entrepreneurs or, or CEOs. You know, there's Cummings. One of these is very interesting about his blog is that he does you know, his sources come from all over the place, um, but they tend to have a shared set of interests and not necessarily a shared philosophy, but some of the same predilections and prejudices. They're not massively keen on democracy on the whole. Uh, it's it's inefficiency, it's slowness. They sort of fetishize a certain kind of decision making, which is actually weirdly it's very uh, human focused. Um, so Cummings. You know, what he likes about Silicon Valley is what he calls its startup culture, but it's sort of corporate and other entities that haven't yet ossified into the sort of corporate robotic form and are still really, really shaped by the pursuit of human talent more than anything else, and then empowering it to sort of do its own thing. And Cummings wants the British state to have more of that in it. And the reason the British state can't have more than that in it is the British state is a 300-year-old robot. You know, it's not it's not a startup enterprise. It, it has now ossified into its corporate form it's pretty hard to shift as these corporations are starting to do too um 
and then within states, you know, what Cummings likes are things like Mossad, but, you know, the, the bits of states that still are really oriented around what you might call human executive um, non-accountable decision-making. Um, he's a great fan of Singapore and the way it functions. And again, what he likes about Singapore is it's a kind of startup state. Uh, but over time, these things all get rigid, notified, the systems kind of take hold. And then there's this you know, shared frustration. And I'm sure the Silicon Valley people will be going through a version of it. I mean, you get it now, right? The, the people who create these startups, when they morph into these corporate entities, then there's that real tension between the, the demands of the corporation and their view that these are just vehicles for their own fantasies and interests and projects and experiments and so on, in the way that doesn't really happen in, in modern democratic states, even the most... You know, even Boris Johnson, who's constantly sort of saying, we can do this, we can do that, build this bridge, build, you know, has, he has these kind of fantasy yeah. visions of what the state can do, but he knows that it doesn't work like that. Uh, but I think some of the young tech people don't get it. So there's, there's a sort of shared ethos around uh, people, ideas, machines in that order, as they like to say, I think. <laughs> um, but, you know, I also think it's, a lot of it is wishful because it's kind of, it just makes all these category mistakes. It kind of, you know, I think it's an example of that thing that, as it were, machines are just thought of as machines, systems. Um, ideas are ideas and people are people, but in, in modern political and corporate structures, these things are really, really hard to disentangle. Um, and so you end up as someone like Cummings or many of the people he cites just wanting to blow the whole thing up and start again. And it is like that earlier story I told. These, these complicated semi-human, semi-mechanical corporate and state entities, they have taken over our lives and made them much, much better. And it would be weird to blow them up in the way that when the, when the AIs go wrong, there will be this sort of thought, well, we can see that they're probably going to kill us all. But on the other hand, we don't want to go back to where we were. Um, we're really reliant on them. But if you're someone like Cummings, you just think, and, and also because he's got that apocalyptic strain in him. So he really does take seriously the thought that um, states, when they go wrong, will kill us all. Um, so he's written in the last few weeks, I have to say very uh, bleak, but very interesting blog posts on nuclear war, nuclear strategy, and the terrible mistake that politicians make, which they think it can be thought of in rational terms. Um, and, and what they don't understand is they're dealing with basically these kind of mutant alien systems. Um, and the idea that you, know, you can, you, you think that mutually assured destruction is the thing that will kind of keep us all safe. He doesn't quite put it in the terms I would, which is, you know, these inhuman machines um, you know, not only are they not particularly rational, but they don't have a completely different risk profile than we do. But he had, you know, he he's written he's written about this a lot, and I think he's really and he he can't get over the extent to which the politicians who are responsible for nuclear strategy just franchise it out to the system. They don't even bother to read the books. They don't even think they're capable. You know, Boris he has this description of a he organised a three hour meeting for Boris on nuclear questions and he forced Boris to leave his phone outside of the room so that he wouldn't be distracted and uh, then the meeting was over and Johnson said to him that was an effing waste of time that you ever ever waste my time like that again 
and it was about mm -hmm. the end of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, so these these this, anyway. He also has been writing about the fallacy of the Cold War that somehow intelligent strategy kept us all safe, whereas it was a bluck, and that when the Soviet Union ended and people went into the Kremlin archives, they discovered that the battle plans of the Russian state, not the battle plans of Gorbachev or Andropov or Brezhnev, but the battle plans of the Russian state were the first sign of trouble to blow Europe to smithereens. Only a state thinks like that. Human beings don't think like that. All of these Silicon Valley guys, and I mean, Russian oligarchs or whomever have the resources to build all the apocalypse bunkers to escape the, <laughs> end of the world will be left. Then the other thing I guess that I wanted to ask, I mean, nuclear weapons seem to, it's, it's funny because as a, somebody who's of my generation, we do think of nuclear weapons as something in the past that we left behind. And then when you look into it, you think, I mean, I remember reading a book a couple of years ago that uh, detailed the number of times U.S accidentally almost detonated mm. a nuclear bomb and yeah. good lord um but i wonder then are there any technologies in particular that kind that that worry you so not necessarily the corporate robot but you know uh, blockchain comes up i always think that blockchain probably the most catastrophic because of its implications for climate change but 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 do you think there's a there's a there's a specific technology that that worries you the most I mean, on the on the profile of risk, I still think it's the nuclear weapons. Uh, and there's that phrase, that book by David Edgerton called The Shock of the Old, which is the ways in which the fact that things are still with us is often much more shocking than the new things that appear out of nowhere. And he gives examples like, you know, there are more bicycles in the world now than at any point in human history. But nuclear weapons, I mean, the way you described it is a very good example. The idea that you know, nuclear weapons would be shocking because we thought we'd left them behind is a much is a good example of how this tends to work which is the vast majority of the structures and systems that we depend on are embedded and dated and you know the the, the new stuff doesn't replace the old stuff i mean the new all of the new stuff all of the silicon valley stuff it's all built on the old stuff including it's all built on state and corporate structures there's no there's no way you get any of these fancy new tools and toys without a deep stratified underlying system of laws, politics, earlier technologies, all of which themselves still have the power to destroy us when they go wrong. You know, if you're building these fancy new things on top of those old things, I think it is one of the fallacies of the Silicon Valley worldview, which is that, you know, because they're surrounded by this sort of brutal pseudo-Darwinian culture in which a few survive and others get swept away. They think that's how the world works, the world of society and politics and economics, and it's not. Um, you know, in the world of politics, almost everything stays. <laughs> nothing, nothing gets swept away. That's part. That's why states aren't startups because nothing gets shut down. Everything is a legacy of everything else, and nuclear weapons are part of that um so the question it you know it seems to me the question is not what new technology is going to come along and and sort of mess everything up but what new technology is going to come along and hook on to what already exists in a way that destabilizes what already exists maybe creates dangerous loops and you know, circular forms of doom um <laughs> and I, th I think you know, military 
capacity and, and the, the ways in which military technology and the decision-making of states might intersect still is the thing that worries me most. Blockchain is you know, the, the great hope of blockchain from the Silicon Valley point of view is it will put states out of business because states are these inefficient things that rely so heavily on human discretion. So they are decision-making machines in which, unfortunately, you know, the machine can be sent off track by human beings. Um, and you know, blockchain is it's not so blockchain is not a decision-making machine. Blockchain is just a repository. Uh, so, so the blockchain doesn't take a decision. Um, but you know, the idea that if that could be a form of money, what you do is strip out all of this discretion. You know, the thing that they hate about states is the discretion. Um, but it wouldn't work as money because money needs discretion. Um, so you, you know, we could make these category mistakes, right? In the same way that the gold standard was a category mistake, past a certain point, modern states couldn't function on the gold standard because the gold standard stripped out the discretion and states were decision-making machines. They were built to secure the prosperity and safety of their people. You know, they were these turbocharged entities that were designed to carry decisions on a scale and you know, with a reach that wasn't possible before. And the gold standard took that away from them and they had to take it back. Um, and it would be a terrible mistake, I think, to think that something that functions because it makes decision making on that scale impossible, the decision to inflate to, to you know, whatever it is that the state wants to do to, to face the crisis in a particular way, you know, that could go horribly wrong. At the same time, blockchain, like all of these things, could have enormous benefits. You can see that. Um, but apart from destroying the planet with its energy needs, it also could lead us to make these really terrible category mistakes. Um, and you know, there's a big risk there, I think. The, the blockchain and the cryptocurrency is a really interesting transition and example because, you know, obviously there's this moment right now around what should states do to curb the power of big tech, right? So like yeah. in the US, it's anti-monopoly approach, EU's doing things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, sometimes I feel like, oh, they're, they're being really naive. They're not really doing anything. But actually I read the uh, FT had a really long read on how the US basically shut down Facebook's cryptocurrency Libra. So then I thought again, okay. oh, actually... Maybe that maybe, you know, maybe I'm just it's, you know, mm. what you see underneath, because that that was very much an example of the state stopping it before it even got into, um, you know, off the ground, despite Facebook's best attempts and all its money. But so so anyways, all of which is to say, I wonder when you think about like what states are doing to curb tech, do you how would you do, do you think they're doing the right thing? Do you think they're slow to move? Do you think people in power are asking the right questions? Um, it's kind of, I never know what to make of the Biden administration's approach to tech, but like, how would you kind of like rate the way that that states are are approaching the challenges of technology? Well, they obviously, different states are doing different things. Like you say, the, the EU, well, the EU is not a state for a start. So the EU is a legal mm -hmm. order, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very much going for a kind of regulatory approach. Um, the US approach is more, as I understand it, to... Um, if these corporations are going to be defanged in some way to do it through uh, the market, um, or you know, even if it's sort of anti-monopolistic uh, reforms, the Chinese state is to co-opt them. Basically, that seems to be uh, the model. You know, to keep them close, um, 
I don't think the American philosophy is to keep them small and the European philosophy is to sort of keep them rule governed, but you know, broadly speaking, that's the, and then in no case is it working. <laughs> it's not, but, that's, uh, but then, you know, states, you know, all states are different. They have different approaches, but then they have some things in common. And one of which is that states are, they're not AIs, they're, you know, they're artificial decision-making machines, but they are general artificial decision-making machines. They are multi-purpose. Corporations are often quite focused on particular tasks, particular um, ways of being. States have to sort of be alert to new challenges, having to sort of morph their focus all the time. Um, and so they're all distracted. I mean, you know, states are both eternally vigilant. That's the point of them, that they're constantly looking, seeing what everyone's up to, but they don't know where the next threat's going to come from. Um, so all states have been distracted recently. I mean, I'd love to know what's going on inside the Chinese state, the extent to which they're preoccupied by Russia and Ukraine, or the extent to which they think, you know, this is just a flash in the pan and their long-term strategy, including their long-term strategy around AI and tech is still very much on track and that the you know this sort of almost medieval war in Eastern mm. Europe is nothing to do with them. And when they come to take Taiwan, it'll be very, very different. Who knows? But the Biden administration has been distracted. The Johnson administration has been completely, because <laughs> it sees this as a lifeline. Um, these administrations are not states. They are just the manifestation of states at any moment in time. But states always have to be expressed through the people who are running them at a given moment. So, you know, the, the biggest difficulty, as with other long-term challenges, climate being the other one, is something that requires a you know, steady eye on the medium-term future. It's actually quite hard for states to do. People say the trouble with corporations under current systems is they have you know, quarterly time horizons. Um, states are meant to have much longer-term time horizons, but some corporations have incredibly long-term time horizons. Um, and some states are very, very easily distracted so i think it i think it varies but it's uh it's not it's not obvious that this is the kind of challenge that um states are well designed to meet i mean that two three hundred year story where states are absolutely integral in getting out of the malthusian trap in creating sort of stable finance in in stabilizing insurance welfare health education all of that but regulating a really fast-moving technological environment in a world that still has all the old stuff in it. When a, when a health crisis comes for a state, other priorities go out the window. And so that then leads to the possibility that what, what we need for this technology to get a really focused and effective response from the state is for it to look to the state like a, you know, an equivalent threat to say a pandemic and what's interesting about Facebook and Libra is Facebook got its own currency that is pretty existential for the American state so it shut it down um, whereas you know, Facebook destroying our privacy is not existential for the American state and actually even Facebook allowing all sorts of nonsense to feed into elections and you know, not, not regulating or taking responsibility for misinformation is actually not existential for the American state. Uh, but money and, and military power are the two things that states really care about. But then, you know, you have to wait for the next existential threat.
Which may, you know, who knows where it would come from, right? If it might come from space. I mean, you know, might, or, or one of these uh, corporations might fail, completely yeah. fail, like a bank. You know, so the states took the regulation of the banks very, very seriously at the point where it became existential. And as soon as it stopped being existential, they, they moved on to other things. Yeah, it does remind me, Tim Huang wrote almost like a response to Shoshana Zuboff's book in which he argues that the actual really scary thing about Facebook is if it fails, what happens to the economy? To say, if it did fail, you would get a very different politics around it, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, precisely. Um, so the last question, which I ask everyone, um, is if you could give one piece of advice or a policy prescription to any entity, be it the Biden administration, Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, Jeff Bezos, Facebook, the EU, what have you, um, what would it be? And it can't be six-year-olds get the vote. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or a corporation so get so the I vote. I definitely wouldn't, I would never give anyone policy advice. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm the kind of machine that knows that I'm not good at that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's, I've often thought that in this space, um, you know, where, where people think it's really new, the chances are there's there's a lot of it that isn't. Uh, but when people think it's familiar, you know, the chances are some of it is pretty new. We have a sort of tendency to get those things the wrong way around and that history is a is probably the best guide to that um i'm not saying they should read more history books or anything like that but there is a it's one of the biggest questions just the biggest general questions which is where where is the new and how is it building on the old and we tend and also it tends to be binary it's either plus a change there's nothing new to see here it'll it'll sort itself out in the end we'll you know we we adapted to the railways we adapted to the this we'll adapt to that there's that kind of it'll all be all right on the night view of history, which is, it looks really new and scary, but it's not, it's fine. Uh, was actually probably when people are saying that they should be really thinking about the ways in which it might be different. Um, at the same time, when people say this is so exciting and different and new, and this is going to change everything, they should be thinking more about the ways in which we've been here before. Uh, so it would be, if you think it's new, it's probably not. And if you think it's not, it probably is. There's an old cartoon where two people are talking to each other and the first person says, I'm writing a book. And the second one says, neither am I. (laughs) You know that cartoon? Yes, that hits a little too close. (laughs) I think PhD students also have a version of that cartoon. I'm writing up, neither am I. (laughs) Oh, dear. 